Blog Talk Radio. But there's a reason. There's a reason. There's a reason for this. There's a reason education sucks, and it's the same reason that it will never, ever, ever be fixed. It's never going to get any better. Don't look for it. Be happy with what you got. Because the owners of this country don't want that. I'm talking about the real owners now. The big, re- the wealthy, that, the real owners, the big, wealthy business interests that control things and make all the important decisions. Forget the politicians. They're, they're, they're an irrelevant. The politicians are put there to give you the idea that you have freedom of choice. You don't. You have no choice. You have owners. They own you. They own everything. They own all the important land. They own and control the corporations. They've long since bought and paid for the Senate, the Congress, the state houses, the city halls. They've got the judges in their back pockets. And they own all the big media, media news, all the big media companies, so they control just about all of the news and information you get to hear. They got you by the balls. They, they spend billions of dollars every year lobbying, lobbying to get what they want. Well, we know what they want. They want more for themselves and less for everybody else. But I'll tell you what they don't want. They don't want a population of citizens capable of critical thinking. They don't want well-informed, well-educated people capable of critical thinking. They're not interested in that. That doesn't help them. That's against their interests. That's right. You know something? They don't want people who are smart enough to sit around the kitchen table and figure out how badly they're getting fucked by a system that threw them overboard 30 fucking years ago. They don't want that. You know what they want? They want obedient workers. Obedient workers. People who are just smart enough to run the machines and do the paperwork and just dumb enough to passively accept all these increasingly shittier jobs with the lower pay, the longer hours, the reduced benefits, the end of overtime, and the vanishing pension that disappears the minute you go to collect it. And now they're coming for your Social Security money. They want your fucking retirement money. They want it back so they can give it to their criminal friends on Wall Street. And you know something? They'll get it. They'll get it all from you sooner or later because they own this fucking place. It's a big club, and you ain't in it. (laughs) You and I are not in the big club. By the way, it's the same big club they used to beat you over the head with all day long when they tell you what to believe all day long, beating you over the head in their media, telling you what to believe, what to think, and what to buy. The table is tilted, folks. The game is rigged. And nobody seems to notice. Nobody seems rich cocksuckers who don't give a fuck about them. They don't give a fuck about you. They don't give a fuck about you. They don't care about you at all. At all. At all. Yeah. You know? And nobody seems to notice, nobody seems to care. That's what the owners count on, the fact that Americans will probably remain willfully ignorant of the big red, white, and blue dick that's being jammed up their assholes every day. Because the owners of this country know the truth. It's called the American dream, because you have to be asleep to believe it. Hey, welcome to this edition of E-Radio. I'm having a little bit of technical problems here getting my guests connected, but we are here um, I hope you enjoyed the little bit of George Carlin there. My guest tonight is going to be Spike Cohen. This is part of my third party candidate series. Um, if this is your first time tuning into V Radio, um, V Radio is an activist podcast. I've had uh, presidential candidates, congressmen, senators. Um, I actually uh, used to be part of the North Virginia Patriots show, which inv- interviewed all of the 2008 libertarian candidates. Um, and 
if you want to uh, support my show, I do have a Patreon, but it's not by any means required. But that's all in the link um, in the description of the show. Um, during the third-party candidate series, I will bringing, be bringing on candidates from all of the major third parties um, and some independents. Uh, just to be very clear, uh, you know, I guess this is my disclaimer that the values and you know, views expressed by my guests do not necessarily reflect the views of V Radio and or its host. So be aware that some of the people that I bring on may not necessarily, you know, go along with what you guys are used to as far as the people who, you know, more typically listen to my show. So I was having problems connecting Spike with Skype, so I'm going to go ahead and try to connect him now using his phone, and we will see how this goes. Hey, Spike, can you hear me? I can hear you fine. Can you hear me? Yeah, there was like some kind of noise in the background, but it sounds better now. So... Um, welcome, Spike, to Z Radio. Uh, v Radio. <laughs> Z Radio. Um, I'm activating the chat room, and if anybody does want to ask any questions, they can also get in touch with me via Facebook. Um, but thanks again for coming on. You know, uh, the first thing that I always ask anybody that I bring on generally, because the majority of them are all people who are, you know, outside the box political you know, activist thinkers, is what got you into activism and politics. So I've been um, I've been fairly active in politics most of my adult life, pretty much all of my adult life. Uh, what's really changed is how I've been involved politically. Um, I was uh, in my um, late teens, I was actually 19 when 9-11 happened, and I had started a web design business two years prior, which was fairly successful, pretty successful. And between the events of 9-11 and the things that happened afterwards and, you know, my, my desire uh, to, you know, have – as little taxes and regulations as possible uh, for me to uh, be able to, you know, grow my business, that kind of leaned me towards being more of like a, a neocon Republican type. Um, and so I was that for many years. Uh, and it took talking with a lot of libertarians and constitutionalists to show me the error of my ways in supporting this kind of ever-growing war hawk government that I was fine with as long as it left me alone um, it, to really show me the error of my ways with that. Uh, that I kind of became over time more of a constitutionalist to a libertarian to eventually now I'm pretty much an anarchist libertarian. And uh, I've been that for the past four or five years now, and I've been very active in it. Um, I started a, uh, I started a company or I became the co-owner of a company called the money, uh, money waters media. And I am the host of my fellow Americans, which is on Wednesdays at 8 PM Eastern. And I am the co-host of the money waters of freedom, which is on Tuesdays uh, at, 8, at 8, 8 p.m. Eastern on uh, Muddy Waters Media, and that's where I do the majority of my activism. Um, the, uh, the natural next course uh, from doing that was to get involved in this very fun and interesting campaign that I'm doing with Vermin Supreme, uh, which has allowed me to uh, amplify and spread that, that uh, activism and, and messaging that I've been doing. Now, you say uh, you, you became involved kind of in anarchism. Um, is there a specific school of anarchism that you would say you subscribe to more than others? Yeah, so I, I think I'm somewhere between, and it depends on who you, whose definitions you use, I'm somewhere between an anarcho-mutualist and an anarcho-capitalist. So I'm definitely in the, the, right, the, 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 the bottom right uh, quadrant of the political spectrum all the way at the bottom. 
Um, that, that's the part that there's no dispute about. I'm definitely all the way at the bottom. How far to the left or, or right I am in that, in that spectrum depends on, on, on who you ask. But I am, uh, I, I'm also what I call a panarchist, uh, which basically means that once you remove the coercion of that, that is inherent in the state and, and government, ultimately you're arguing over preference of how you would like to organize your society. And at the end of the day, I don't believe that 7.5 billion people are going to voluntarily organize their societies exactly the same way. And so I'm, I'm increasingly less interested in arguing the minutia of different forms of anarchism as I am in doing activism to try to move us in a, at least stop the ever-growing ever expansion of government. And if we ever actually get to a stateless society, I guess we can have more in-depth debates about what that would look like. But in terms of what I personally think it would more often than not look like and be more, most successful, like I said, somewhere between an anarcho-capitalist and an anarcho-mutualist. Okay. Well, no, that's a pretty decent answer, and I understand completely. Obviously, um, I remember interacting in my time as a member of the Libertarian Party um, with the anarchist wing of the party. Um, and I, I guess I did find it a little odd only because I was like, well, if you're an anarchist, then why would you run for president? Um, you know, so <laughs> right. how would you answer that question? Because obviously, well, I'm stateless, but I'm running for the highest state position in the land. <laughs> in the land, in, in, in the land, not just uh, not just the U.S. and in, in pretty much on the planet. Um, so <laughs> it's a very interesting debate. It's a very interesting debate among anarchists. Um, I actually am a, only a recent member of the Libertarian Party, um, precisely because I tended to land on the side of saying that, you know, uh, it, uh, it's interesting that you use uh, George Carlin on your, on your lead-in because he talked about, uh, you know, voting and says, you know, if, if voting actually worked, then they wouldn't let you do it. If voting was actually going to change anything uh, from what they were going to plan on doing anyway, then they'd never let you do it. And I tended to agree with that, and I'm not sure I, I, I disagree with that 100%. Uh, but the reason I got into the Libertarian Party is because I believe that it is a, an effective tool of reaching people who disagree with us, who, who don't even recognize that there is such a thing as anarchy. If you, if you talk to them about what anarchy is, they think that it's just you know, Mad Max chaos. They don't realize it's an actual principled system of, of, of voluntary action. And, and using, leveraging what the Libertarian Party is to, A, uh, spread a message of, of self-ownership and non-aggression and voluntary action over coercive ones, but also B, potentially get some anarchists or even minarchists in government to at least do harm reduction. So it, it's two things. It's messaging and it's harm reduction. Um, I'm very much a believer in harm reduction. I, I am not someone who thinks that if I can't have every single thing I want, a, a complete anarchist utopia with, without a semblance of artificial coercive hierarchy, then I just assume it stay the way it is. I, 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 I think that that's an incredibly privileged position to take uh, from someone who's not really truly feeling the harm of government. And I've seen too many people who are acutely every single day feeling the harm of government to simply sit back and say, oh, well, it's not going to be the way exactly that I want it, and I'm not sure how effective I'm going to be, so I'm just going to kind of take you know, pot shots at it from the, from the sidelines. Um, whether uh, voting is effective or not, I, I find to be a secondary issue to leveraging this party uh, uh, for what we can use it for, which is harm reduction and, uh, and, and, and activism and reaching out to people to let them know that, that they don't need a government. Yeah, that's definitely, uh, I remember, you know, it's difficult sometimes to help people understand uh, the idea of a stateless society. Um, and it's, it's oh, yeah. also interesting when you talk about the different schools, because, 
you know, uh, there are people, for example, that are not aware of the fact that there's even, you know, anarchist versions of communism and syndicalism and oh, yeah. uh, primitivism. Yeah. And, um, you know, most of my interactions um, with anarcho-capitalists, you know, uh, sometimes they say, well, we're actually, we're the, we're the only real anarchist school. Um, yeah. You know, and and yeah. I've actually had people like that. You know, I've actually debated Michael Shanklin quite a bit. I don't know if you know who he is. He's been on my show multiple times. Um and to the listeners now, you can go back to my archives going all the way back to 2008, and you'll see that I went through a lot of political shifts in my life. Um, you know, so I, I guess uh, now, as far as like, now I remember this, and I want to make sure is this if this is still how it's done, but vice presidential candidates for the Libertarian Party run separately, don't they? Or aren't they elected separately? Yes. Okay. That's correct. So the way that the Libertarian Party um, I guess I can give you the biggest picture possible so everyone's kind of understanding how this works. Basically what happens is every state, uh, every state libertarian party has their convention, and they pick their delegates that they will then send to the national convention. And, of course, right now that's all in a bit of a turmoil thanks to the COVID-19. But in theory, if we weren't facing a pandemic right now, uh, all of those people would then go to a national convention, uh, and then at the national convention those delegates choose – who they want for a, a variety of positions, the chair of the party, the vice chair, the secretary, and a bunch of But then after, after they do that, then they pick who they want to be their presidential nominee and then who they, want to, uh, who they want to pick to be their vice presidential nominee. Now, more often than not, when they pick their presidential nominee, the presidential nominee gives a speech saying, here's who I would like to be my vice presidential nominee, and they typically pick that person. But there's nothing saying that they have to do that. They can actually pick whoever they want, including uh, people who aren't even running or someone, someone else who was running for president or you know, whatever. They can pick whoever they want. The, the purpose behind us running as a unified ticket is not to say you have to pick me if you want Vermin or you have to pick Vermin if you want me, although if Vermin did get the nomination, he would ask them to pick me. It's more to say that we believe that we are the best team for your consideration to run together, that our, our, our ideas of campaigning and our philosophy for what we want to accomplish as the nominees and for the party uh, best work well together. But yeah, ultimately they can pick whoever they want. So obviously at some point um, I would plan to have Vermin on, and it is my goal to try to have all of the libertarian candidates for president. And if there are other candidates for VP, obviously, I guess I would bring them on too, for that reason. Um, and mm -hmm. hopefully culminating in a debate between the various libertarian candidates on my format, uh, which I discussed a little bit with you off the air. I know tomorrow uh, mm -hmm. I actually have um, one of the other candidates, um, Sam. I talked to him a bit and um, his show, his actually show is already planned for tomorrow night. Uh, Sunday night at 6 p.m. Sam Rob. Yeah, that's yeah, that's him. <laughs> My apologies, I only yeah, just met the fellow. He's a, no, no, no he's that's like fine. No, I was just saying you're gonna you're gonna like him. He's a really cool guy. Right. Um. And then I'm currently in negotiations to um have Mr. Um the governor for, former governor former senator. I just I'm afraid I'm gonna mispronounce his name, but it's not, but it looks like Chaffee. <laughs> um. He's it's supposed Chaffee, to be coming on Lincoln Chaffee. Chaffee. Yeah. It's going to be something coming on sometime next week. We haven't been able to finalize that yet. Um, and I'm reaching out. So if you know any of the other candidates or if any of the listeners know any of the other candidates who would like to be heard, and that includes non-libertarian candidates, uh, you know, please reach out and let me know. So let me just jump right in, I guess, to some of the more common questions that 
presidential candidates are asked. And I'd like to begin mm-hmm. with foreign policy. Um, now, obviously, okay. it's difficult to ask you this question directly in that, okay, so you're the guy is usually what I do or the gal as the case may be, right. you know, and, you know, but let's assume, you know, based upon your own answers, because theoretically, somebody could ride it, you know, ride, you know, run against you, but you're the vice president. And um, you look at the situations that we currently have in the with the United States and their relations with other countries, what would be different in your administration? Well, and, and the best way I can say this is, like you said, I'm, I'm running for VP, which is largely a ceremonial role with the idea that if something were to happen to the president, then I, I would, I would uh, assuming he's still alive I would, I, or she's still alive, I would serve in their stead until they could. Uh, or if something happened to them permanently, then I, I, would, I would serve in the meantime, and I, I'd be the tie-breaking vote in the Senate. But for the most part, my position would be ceremonial other than just the bully pulpit that comes with being the vice president. So I can give you an idea of what I would advocate for as vice president or if I were president, how I would, you know, how I would deal well, with that Well, you know, situation. as they said in House um, of Cards, you're a heartbeat away from being the president. So let's assume, let's, exactly. I mean, just to make it easier, we'll just say, we'll assume Berman is incapacitated for some reason. Okay, fair enough. Well, he talks about how he's going to be traveling in time a lot. So assuming when he's traveling in time, I would be serving as president. Um, so, I mean, the short answer is the, the, the people of the world aren't going to fear our government anymore. And, and, and what I mean by that is if you look at how – and we have a very unique way of looking at things as Americans because it's taught to us from the beginning. Uh, it's a very unique political culture, and it, it is sort of the bedrock of how we look at things which is in mainstream political culture, Republican, Democrat, whatever, even, even many libertarians, we have this concept where um, the, the U.S. military can go anywhere on earth and kill anyone they want to, even if we don't agree with it. We may not agree with the way that they're killing, uh, but, but they can still do it. And we may not like that we know that women and children and, and, and non-combatants are going to get killed, but we simply accept it as so-called collateral damage. We, we, we have this idea that they can go anywhere and kill anyone, and if anyone tries to fight back, they're a terrorist and it's completely illegitimate, illegitimate that they're fighting back. Now, of course, we would never think that way if it was the other way around. If there were a foreign government that were here occupying, you know, our neighborhoods and, 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 and you know, bombing our, our towns and our neighborhoods, and, you know, our children grew up to be scared of sunny days because, if they, because those, they know those are the days that the drone attacks and the bombings are more likely to happen because the skies are clearer for targeting. If we experienced that kind of situation in our lives, not only would we fight back as hard as we possibly could, we would support anyone else who fought back on it. And yet we have such a disconnect with the reality of what our military is doing to people overseas that we will say things like, well, I don't agree with what they're doing over there, you know, and, and, and I don't think what they're doing is right, uh, but we got to support them and, and we, we got to stop these people from, from, you know, these terrorists, quote unquote. In other words, I don't think, I think what these people are doing is morally murder, but I don't want anyone to do anything against it but die because they don't have American passports. And that is a very interesting concept that the majority of Americans walk around with. And it's not something that is logically consistent with anything else they believe, but it is a jingoism that we have been taught since we were little tiny children and has been instilled into us from, from pretty much as soon as we could process concepts. That it's, it's, it's when someone says that that's not correct, 
we immediately consider them an enemy or a terrorist sympathizer or, you know, just some kind of a terrible person. So the short answer is, as president, if I were to serve as president in Bermanstead, that would end. We would stop bombing other countries. We would stop using the threat of this gigantic, massive, bloated military to, to harm anyone who disagrees with us, that doesn't use our petrodollars, that doesn't engage in our central banking system, that, that we would stop using our friends and neighbors and loved ones and having them kill and sacrifice their lives and their time and their well-being to go around the world and act as chess pieces to enforce the, the, the global dominance of our government and their favorite crony uh, contractors and, 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 and members of the military and industrial complex. That would all end. And not just, not just we'd end those hot wars, we'd bring all the troops home. We'd end the occupations. We would bring them home we would, dis, we would discharge them from active duty, and if not completely dismantle the Department of Defense, we would at least bring it down to a structure that is fitting only for immediate defense against invasion and attack, which is much, much smaller than the bloated Leviathan monster that we have now. Well said. I would, I would definitely agree with everything you said there. Um, the Libertarian Party has always been solid on the issues of foreign policy. It was actually Ron Paul's right. foreign policy was what brought me political activism in the first place. Somebody gave me a link of him talking about why they attacked us on 9-11, and he actually told the truth. And I was like, wow, did that guy just say that out loud on national <laughs> TV? You know, right, um, right, exactly. so anyway, um, no, that was definitely a good and solid answer. I guess let me give you some scenarios based on current events. Um, sure. W- do you advocate, I guess, you know, um, well, actually, let, let's just go with Syria. Um, if mm-hmm. How would you, as president, handle the issues going on in Syria? So that's a really difficult one, right? Because that's a situation where a government is harming other people. Um, the short answer is anyone who wishes to go over there and fight on behalf of the Syrian people are welcome to do so. And anyone who wants to supply arms either for free or, or, or charging or supply any kind of assistance or anything like that is free to do so. As strong as the impulse might be to say, you know what, I'm against foreign military interventionism, but you know what, we've already got this military and maybe they'll be able to go over there and stop it. We know historically how that ends. More people die. It lasts longer. The suffering is worse. There, it, it, it rarely, if ever, ends in a situation that would have been better if we hadn't gotten involved in the first place. And even worse, it leads to even worse things down the road. Something that you may be thinking of asking next, so I'll go ahead and answer it just in case, is people will say, well, what about the Holocaust? What about World War II? What would you have done there? And my answer is I would have never started World War I. World War II was simply an extension of World War I. And, and we can argue that what's happening in Syria is just an extension of all the other wars that are happening in the Middle East, when you go into an area and destabilize it for personal purposes, which in this case is oil, uh, 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 the geographical region, dominating the geographical region, uh, uh, generating money for your, your cronies in the uh, military industrial complex, when you destabilize things and you kill tons of people and you set this, this narrative and agenda in a region that the way that you get things done is to round up and kill lots and lots of people and to threaten to kill everyone else until they do what you say, that's the reality you set. Remember, the Ba'ath Party, which is what uh, Bashar Assad is a member of, which was also what Saddam Hussein was a member of, that was created as a way to fight back. That was a, a party that was, that was built up and, and fostered and helped by the U.S. military and intelligence services in order to fight back against the Iranian government, 
and the Soviet government. And so that is a monster of the creation of the U.S. government. And there is a time when you eventually have to say, listen, we're going to stop feeding these monsters that we're creating, including our own, including the, the U.S. Department of Defense. All of the monsters, we're not going to be feeding them anymore. And whatever temporary bad things may happen as a result of that, long term, you're going to see less suffering, less death, less mayhem, less murder as people can, can, can begin to heal and, and the level of, of violent coercion that was in that region goes away. That can, or at least greatly subsides. Again, going back to harm reduction, the level of harm in that region can be reduced. That was an excellent answer. Um, you know, when you brought up the idea of people individually deciding that they wanted to go, you know, take up arms, and there are actually people that are doing that now. Um, there were soldiers mm-hmm. who went over Absolutely. to fight beside the Kurds, for example. Um, and yeah. it also kind of harkened me back to um, when Ross Perot put together a group of mercenaries to try to go and rescue Vietnam POWs because nobody was getting it done. Um, so he just used right. his own money, hired guys, and sent them in there. Unfortunately, they didn't get anybody. And um, there's actually a rumor that people believe that they may that the U.S. government may have tipped them off. I don't know if that's true or not, but it still is an example oh, wow. of the kind of individual action that could be taken if you feel strongly about something like that. And I'm glad that, you know, you acknowledge that people should be able to do that if they feel so compelled. Um, so um, now when it comes to, that is an interesting you know, thing though, is like, you know, we put ourselves in the shoes of the politicians that are trying to make decisions during a circumstance like 9-11, you know, so if we just assume, for example, there's another major terrorist attack um, like 9-11, what do you think, if, you know, we went back in time and, you know, you guys were in charge at that point, how would you handle it? Because at that point you do have an aggressor, but, you know, how, was, how would you militarily respond to it or would you? So a perfect example of, of what I'm talking about, and I'm, I'm glad you brought this up, because the, the two big ones that come up are 9-11 and the Holocaust, right? Because those are where we have clear-cut acts of, of what, what many, or at least... In the case of the Holocaust, it's absolutely aggression. In the case of 9-11, it's often perceived as aggression. I actually see it a little bit differently, and I can get into that. If I had governed prior to 9-11, I would have governed in ways that would have prevented 9-11 from happening by stopping the blowback reaction to what we were doing in the Middle East. If I came into office on the day of 9-11, obviously understanding the real politic of, of, you know, the, the desire for revenge and so forth that would be happening as a result of that, you know, would I be having to use military to, you know, demand the turnover of, of, of you know, uh, uh, bin Laden or the Taliban or something like that? You know, that, that's, a, that, that's a very tough one because, you know, it's, it's one of those, if I stand firm on my principle, I'm probably going to end up getting impeached, which might honestly be worth it, actually, uh, now that I'm actually thinking through it. But here's what I will say um, in terms of that. The most powerful thing we could have done after 9-11 is acknowledge why it happened and honor the lives of the people who were lost on 9-11 by recognizing why they were targeted in the first place so that we could end this cycle of violence. And that would be very, very unpopular. It's unpopular for me to say that now, and it's, what, 19 years later. And it's still, or almost 19 years later, and it's still unpopular to say that now. We have a confirmation bias and a normalcy bias that sets in that we want to say that the reason that this happened, and, and an American exceptionalism bias that sets in, that we want to believe that the reason that happened is because evil people woke up and said, one day, let's start planning to hurt lots and lots of Americans without looking at the context of why they wanted to do that. 
again, going back to my example of if, you know, people were bombing your neighborhood and, and, and occupying your neighborhood, and you were powerless to fight back because this isn't just some gang of a few dozen people fighting. This is a massive military. Let's, let's pretend the Chinese military has the capability and our military doesn't have the capability to fight back. We're being bombed, occupied. People are being, you know, arrested and held in dungeons where they're being tortured. We're hearing constant nightmare scenarios, and our government is either unable or unwilling to do anything about it. And then in the midst of all of that, an extremist group, let's call it an extremist Christian group, because this is a majority Christian or self-identified Christian country, an extremist Christian group comes up and says, God wants us to fight back. We are in a holy war against the Chinese government, and we are going to fight them wherever they stand. And first they fight by fighting back in our neighborhoods. And then one day they actually stage an attack in China in their, say, in Beijing or Shanghai or one of their, you know, one of their top uh, industrial or, 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 or um, financial centers and give them a bloody nose so that they can experience for the first time what we've been experiencing for however many years and decades, the trauma that comes with families. You know, we're getting a taste of what it's like to not be normal with this COVID thing, the idea that you just can't go out and do whatever you want and hang out with however many people you want. Imagine if the reason you couldn't go outside is because you might get bombed. You might have right. a drone attack you. Uh, you when we think of that, and then think of how we would want to respond to that. I think that helps us get an idea for what the, the, the mentality of people in the, greater, in, in, in the Middle East and Central Asia, in the greater Muslim world, what many of them, honestly, the fact that so many of them still want peace with us is a testament to them as a people. Because I can tell you right now, I wouldn't want peace. I would not be unhappy to hear that, you know, the, the, the Chinese people had a bloody nose after what their government put us through with their, largely with their assent, for you know decades, so I think if a 9/11 happened on my watch, I would be looking for a way to actually stop one from ever happening again. That's an excellent answer, and I'm glad that you you got into the background of it, and, and that kind of once again harkens me back to that Ron Paul moment that introduced me to the libertarian you know thought, um, right. and right. it that it, people are very unaware of the fact that the these things don't happen for no reason, that it's a blowback situation, and I think that. Um, one of the things I've noticed in talking about politics is that unfortunately a lot of people are not necessarily, I, I don't want to be mean, but intelligent enough to be talking about it. You, you talk to some people and they don't, they don't have the scope of it. They don't, they don't understand the full grasp of it. That's why I've, I've been very happy so far. You, you come off as very educated about these issues and I'm, I'm very happy to hear it now. Um, Moving on from foreign policy, you did mention COVID-19, and obviously that is something that all of the voters right now are thinking about very heavily, and it, it does create a circumstance that will be difficult, Tarians, especially anarchists, you know, because it looks like the best way to save everybody might be a whole lot of state control. You know, so it, that's a very delicate thing for you guys to handle as libertarians. So I guess let me give you a moment again. You know, let's assume Berman's out of the situation, but, uh, you know, we, they still have to be able to gauge and trust you, you know, that you could handle it if he wasn't there. So if you're the president, COVID-19, you're, and you're dropped into the situation, let's say, actually, let's go back a little bit. I'll, I'll give you a month ago so that you don't have to be as screwed as we are right now. I'll be nice. Right, right, right. So, okay, so first of all, let me just say one more thing on foreign policy. 
Um, go ahead. I, go the ahead. best way that you can foster friendship, the best way you can foster friendship with people is to trade with them. Uh, I think it was Bernie Sanders who said, if you don't trade goods and services with people, you're going to, if you don't trade, I forget how he worded it, but basically if you don't trade goods and services with people, you're going to train, you're going to trade bombs and bullets. And so I think that that trade, when you look at the reality that the first thing that government does before they start a war is start a trade embargo, one of the biggest reasons they do that is to remove any financial disincentive for the war to be done. Because they know that if we have a financial interest in, in keeping good relations with these countries, that we won't, we'll be less likely to support war. So that's one of the most powerful reasons to do these embargoes, is to remove that financial incentive to, for peace. So I, I would do the opposite. I would be removing embargoes and introducing free trade across the board. Talking about COVID, I actually just did a video about this because I've had people say to me, you know, what would you do if you're president, vice president, whatever, you're in charge uh, during COVID, how do you handle that in a libertarian way? Because right now it looks like the best way to handle this is to make everyone stay inside and, and you know, right. contain them and arrest them and so forth if they, if they don't. Here's what I will say about that. When people say, what would you do differently? We now know that as recently as early to mid-January, that the White House knew the full scope of what this posed. And, it's, and for the most part, we knew it too. I've been following this thing for uh, two, three months, uh, two, three weeks, and I actually have a very bad hot take that is still available online on the Muddy Waters of Freedom. When I first heard of this thing, I said, oh, you know, it's not much worse than the flu, and, you know, how many people die of the flu? Because I really hadn't spent a lot of time thinking about it. And I, people still give me flack about that because I, I literally knew very little about it other than it was similar to SARS. What I didn't know was that it could spread asymptomatically. I didn't know that it had a rate of doubling of four to six days. If I had known that at the time, I would have been sounding alarms that week instead of the week after. Anyway, we knew pretty early on into January that this was a disease that was destined to spread everywhere if it wasn't contained, that the only way that you could stop it from, contain, from containment or stop it from getting out of containment, was to test everyone all the time. South Korea has actually been a pretty decent model for how to handle this. They haven't had to do a lot of the lockdowns that other countries have had to do because what they did was they informed the public on what this was, and they tested everyone. And now if someone came back positive for a test, they got immediate treatment, which obviously came with containment. And by doing that, they've been able to keep their uh, um, fatality rate as low as I think it's 0.5 or 0.6%, still more deadly than the flu, but not all that more deadly than the flu. And they've been able to contain it even though they're right next to China, um, which at this point is kind of irrelevant because it's everywhere. But they were one of the first countries to get an outbreak because they were right there next to China and had a lot of trade and, 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 um, and travel in between the country. And they've been able to con contain it. When our government found out what this thing was, their first impulse was to tell everyone that it was a hoax and that everything was fine and that there was nothing to worry about. The next thing that they did was to continue the restrictions on testing. See, what a lot of people don't know is that the reason why we only knew there were like four or five people that had it here for the, the first couple months is because they weren't testing anyone. And the reason they weren't testing anyone is because we have these restrictions on being able to test for novel viruses. You have to actually get an application. You have to file an application and get an approval from the CDC, which takes months. And so you had the CDC telling people like Dr. Helen Chu at the University of, of Washington who said, we want to start testing patients for COVID because we have people that are reporting these symptoms who are coming back from Wuhan, China, and we'd like to test them. And the CDC's response is, hey, that's great. Just send us your application by email and mail and give us five to seven business days to acknowledge receipt of it. And within however many business weeks, 
we will respond back and we'll probably want more information and you'll have to respond back the same way. And by some time in maybe June or July, you'll be allowed to test. Now keep in mind, the people saying this are not some flunkies. They're with the CDC. They know what this disease is. They know that more than likely, all of us are gonna have it by June unless we do some level of containment or mitigation. But that's what the sheet of paper told them to do. That's what whatever rule and regulation was in place told them to do. And so that's what they told Dr. Helen Chu and anyone else who said that they were going to do testing. Thankfully, Dr. Chu and a handful of others illegally tested people for COVID. We already had all the standards. The WHO already had their own test protocol. The, uh, these other universities and, and, and hospitals were already making their own testing protocol. And so they started testing people. The CDC's initial response to hearing that there were four or five people that had it was to try to order these people. Well, actually, first, they, didn't, they hadn't released it publicly. But Dr. Helen Chu and, and others brought this information to the CDC and said, we need to do something. People already have this. Please let us start testing so we can start containment protocol. The CDC's first response was to tell them to destroy all of their tests, including the positive results, and not tell anyone. Wow. Thankfully, Dr. Chu, <laughs> yeah. Thankfully, Dr. Chu and others said, yeah, no, screw that. I signed a Hippocratic Oath. There's not a shot in hell you're going to have me stands put and, and, and let you call this a hoax while it's spreading un, undetected through our population. For those who don't know, by the way, this thing can spread. A person can have it for up to two weeks without symptoms and spread it to everyone around them. They can sneeze on something and it can live on the surface, depending on what kind of surface it, it is and what the temperature is outside, for up to three weeks. That's why it's spreading the way it is. This thing is highly, highly, highly virulent. It is highly easily spreadable. So anyway, so, so they responded by illegally releasing the results, which is how we even knew that there was one person in Boston that had it and two people in Seattle that had it and three people in California that had, had it. If they had followed the law, we would still be oblivious. Actually, probably right around now, we'd be getting told, oh, yeah, it's here, by the way. <laughs> that, allowed a certain, that allowed some small level of containment. But it gets even worse than that. We have problems in this country such as certificate of need laws, which say that if you want to build a hospital, you basically have to get enough signatures to allow for a petition for you to basically beg your local authority of, of, of approving certificates of need to even build a hospital. Because everyone knows the best way to uh, reduce the cost of health care uh, is to limit the number of hospitals that there are. The best way to, definitely the best way to reduce cost is to limit supply in the best of conditions that, that reduces our choices and raises costs. In this kind of a situation, it means tens of millions or, or at least millions or hundreds of thousands of people dying in hospital hallways because there simply aren't enough beds for them. The United States has something like 2.8 hospital beds per capita. We are among the lowest in the developed world compared to uh, Japan and South Korea, which are in the double digits. One of them has like 13 beds per capita, and one of them has like 11 beds per capita. And it's not because of a lack of money in the healthcare sector. It's because they have to scrape and beg for people to even be allowed to build one. Then we have our ridiculous IP patent laws, which make it so that N95 respirators are not that difficult to build. But the problem is you have to be one of the companies that has the patent on, on a type of N95 Respirator. There are open source blueprints out right now where people could be 3D printing them or, or building facilities to print them. And if you actually have a patent, right now it's going to take you between 45 and 90 days to get approval to build a new factory to build more masks. 
So basically, you have a series of barriers and chokeholds on the market that make it nearly impossible for us to actually deal with this disease. Then what you have is a government official, the highest one in the land, saying this is nothing to worry about. Up until a couple of weeks ago, right now, it's the, you know, the worst thing to ever deal with. But up until recently, he was saying it was nothing to worry about. So how would I have handled this so we didn't end up in this dystopian nightmare where you have the police going around telling everyone to stay indoors? I would have allowed it to be contained by letting people test for it without having to get permission from me. I would have allowed people to make 60-year-old drug treatments and and uh, 50-year-old medical devices such as saline bags and, and, and respirators and the little swabs that they use to test people for it without having to, you know, scrape and beg to the cronies who do all this patent squatting on so-called intellectual property. I wouldn't have restrictions on truckers that make it harder for them to bring their their goods and services to the market. Everything from, uh, uh, you know, these masks and, and, and other medical supplies all the way to toilet paper and canned goods. I would remove the restrictions that make it hard for healthcare workers to work across state lines so that they can go where they need to go without having government permission and waiting however many business days or weeks while people are dying in hallways. I would take off the chokehold from the market so that people who are trying to save lives wouldn't have to choose between letting people die or facing jail time. And I think that those measures, just the testing alone, those measures would allow us to have a similar situation to what South Korea has, where it's not this bad, where we are not having to tell people to stay indoors, where we are not uh, uh, fostering this idea within people that it's all just a hoax for one party to, to hurt the other party. All of these things combined, I think, would have us with a situation much more similar to South Korea, and it wouldn't require a single boot being placed on a single neck, just the opposite. Now that's, you know, obviously, so basically you're talking about a preventative strategy, and I think that you actually made a pretty compelling argument for deregulation of the market to benefit the people. I think one of my biggest criticisms in dealing with a lot of free market libertarians when I debate them is that they can't usually articulate what the direct benefit of those deregulations are. So you did a very good job (laughs) there of actually doing that because they're like, well, if we just get rid of the regulation, then magically everything, you know, you're going to have to do better than that. But you did better than that. The invisible hand. The invisible hand. The invisible hand. Right. The invisible hand. Nobody's going to buy that. (laughs) So you you got to tell people at least how many fingers the hand has. And that, and that so. actually, exactly, because, I mean, I've seen some hands I don't want touching me. Listen, I, here, here's one of the problems with, with messaging in general, and this isn't specific to libertarians, but we have a, a major hill to climb because there aren't a lot of us to begin with. We often talk inside baseball to each other. And you, you know this. You were in the party, so you, you know what I'm talking about. We talk about, sure. we use terms like blowback and the invisible hand, and we talk about, you know, we tell each other to read Rothbard, and we, 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 we get into these very insular debates because it makes us feel comfortable with the fact that the entire world around us is doing the exact opposite of what, you know, I, I don't know if you've seen that fake Gadsden flag that shows uh, of a snake being stepped on, and it says, this is the exact opposite of what I, or I specifically requested the exact opposite of this. We're trying to cope with the reality of the exact opposite of what we requested happening to us by often withdrawing from the public. We have such disdain for these bootlicking statists that we basically just argue with each other about policy over and over again. And there's, I mean, there is such a case as, as, there is such a thing as iron sharpening iron, but often I don't think that's what's happening. What's happening is you have frustrated, scared libertarians who are arguing with each other because they feel powerless to affect what's happening in the greater culture. And 
fully understand that impulse, and I felt it before in the past. At this point, uh, I feel like the very best thing I can do is to talk to people who think that government is the best way to do things, Republicans, Democrats, whomever, people who, or people who think that government is the best way to do things, and explain to them why I don't think it is, and, and using terms that they'll understand, not because they're stupid, but because they don't spend all day long reading policy and, and, and philosophy books. They're, they're busy trying to make ends meet like the rest of us. And so reaching them where they are, and that's been a big part of my campaign even before I started running for vice president, going into housing projects and talking with people about, about you know, how the state is harming them. And, 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 and very often I find that they're just completing my sentences. I'm not even having to tell them. They're telling me stuff I didn't know and, and letting them know there's a word for what they believe in. Here I have people that are living in housing projects that are freaking agorists and don't even know it. They're living outside of government as much as they can. They're living in housing projects, doing, you know, doing side hustle jobs and all sorts of stuff, engaging in illegalism and mutual aid. They have no idea what these things even are, or, or at least they don't know what the terms are. But they're doing it instead of talking about it philosophically. I go to uh, university campuses and talk with students who are scared about the fact that they have, they already have, uh, you know, some of them aren't even 20 yet, and they have six figures of student debt. And they don't know where, they don't have a job waiting for them. And they're being told by their, their you know, boomer relatives that, oh, well, you know, when I was your age, I just worked to pay for my tuition. Yeah, it was, a, it was a 20th of what it is now, or a 50th of what it is now. And, or, you know, I just, I worked hard and I was able to buy my own house. Yeah, well, a house back then cost ten to $15,000, and you weren't making a lot less than I was back then. And so right. talking to people where they are, and instead of telling them something like, healthcare is not a, ser- not a, it's a service, not a, not a right, I talk to them about how healthcare can be better, how a free market can introduce healthcare instead of coming at them in an accusatory tone. So it's a very big part of what I'm doing is reaching people where they are and explaining to them and talking with them and having a conversation where we can both influence each other about what's going on so I can hear their concerns and know what it is that they actually, what they're actually concerned about. Because a lot of them aren't concerned about taxes. They don't care about taxes. They don't care about the Federal Reserve because they don't know why they should. And so it's good to have that conversation with them. Now, that's fantastic. I have to say I'm very impressed because that was one of my biggest frustrations is that when I went to the Libertarian National Convention, I saw exactly what you're talking about. And it almost felt like a lot of these, those people, it was like being at an anime convention or something. I mean, not literally, but it's just like yeah. they were satisfied just yeah, to yeah. be at a convention and they didn't care mm-hmm. if nothing came out of that convention when they were done. That's why, um, right. I mean, Senator Gravel, he was the one I was a delegate for. And obviously he was a difficult fit for the Libertarian Party. But he, you know, nobody even really understood the value of the fact that they had a former senator, you know, there. And and as a result, it didn't mean that they even had to vote for him, but nobody even treated him like he like he never felt like he was ever really um, welcome, I guess would be the way to put it. You know, and even if they didn't agree with everything Mike said, there was still a point that, you know, an active U.S. senator who was actually a big deal in the Vietnam War joined their party, you know. um, But anyway, so. You know, going back to COVID-19, I, I need to just switch the gears a little bit and, and let's let's move forward okay. a little bit and assume that the, the problem has gotten out of control because this is where you where you have to test the libertarian philosophy very, you know, very heavily. You know how I mean, obviously, in an anarchist situation, I, I don't even I don't even want to think what a global pandemic would look like in an anarchist situation for any of the anarchist schools. But um you know, if you're in a scenario where you're a libertarian president and we still have the governmental system that we do now 
And we're in a situation where there's a whole lot of people in the United States in particular is really resistant to things like being told where to go and where not to go. I mean, we saw that when yeah. that huge group of kids went out to the beach on spring break in the middle of a pandemic, you know. Um, so if yeah. you're in a scenario where for the sake of everybody's safety, how do you mitigate libertarian philosophy with a situation that, you know, free choice is actually in, in, in many ways at that point, in my opinion, this is the answer I would give you is now you're looking at your free choice possibly violating the non-aggression principle. Um, would you agree with that take? I agree that in an informed person who is going around being a potential vector, there is an argument to be made that they're, that they're violating the NAP, the non-aggression principle. And for those who don't know what the non-aggression principle is, it's basically a, a framework that says that it, it operates from the presumption that each of us, and I agree with this presumption, each of us own ourselves, which means we own our bodies, which means we own our lives, which means we own our labor, and which means that we own our, the product of our labor, our property. And so it, what it basically says is that these are our things that are inherent to us and that we inherently own, innately own ourselves, our lives, our bodies, our properties, and so forth, and that if anyone tries to infringe upon those things, tries to take from our life, tries to take from our property, tries to take from our, our health, our body, our rights, and so forth, that they are committing an aggression against us, and vice versa, if we do the, do the same to them, that we're committing an aggression against them, and that if we, if we, if we say that aggression is wrong, and we work to limit aggression, then we are ultimately creating a fairer and more equitable and more moral society. So that's what the non-aggression principle is for those who don't, who don't understand it. The short, the short version of it is don't hurt people and don't take their stuff. It, I'm not a fan of that, of presenting it that way, but that's the shortest way to do it, shorter than my way anyway. So you had two questions there. The first one is how would this be handled in an anarchist society? And then the second one would be how would I handle it in the current society that we have? Um, let me talk about the anarchist one, because that's actually a very interesting one. Anarchy, a lot of people see anarchy as this free-for-all where, where, you know, people are, you know, I, I joke that, you know, it, the first thing that I would buy in an anarchist society is I'd, I'd buy some nice car grills to wear on my chest when I go on the raids, and I'd have to decide if I wanted to get some <laughs> hair dye and eyeshadow, too. Like, I mean, it's that, that's the vision that a lot of us get when we think anarchy. Anarchy simply means the removal of presumptive authority, meaning that, any authority over us is actually derived from true consent, true unanimous consent that can be, can be separated from at will. So you have people who are in positions of authority who have been chosen to be there, not by a plurality of a group of voters in a democratic system necessarily, but by the actual universal consent of the people within that voluntary society. So in a situation like a pandemic, you would still see lockdowns in those situations, and you would still see in this kind of a pandemic, not something like a SARS, which can be contained to people that are, you know, symptomatic and stuff like that, which is why SARS never really spread. Once they knew what they were facing, it never really spread that bad, and, and, and the number of deaths was far lower than what we're seeing now. Um, but in something like this, you would see people taking what we would consider coercive action. But, but it wouldn't be done by a statist authority that never got any kind of authority over us to begin with. So would there still be people being locked down? Would there still be people being told, you know, nothing's going to be open? Yeah, probably so. Going back to this situation, I think the two most powerful things that I could do without having to, to lift a single finger for, um, for uh, uh, you know, forcing people to stay indoors or anything like that, 
the two biggest things I would do is, first of all, I never would have been telling anyone that this was a hoax. I would have been telling them how serious it was from the beginning. And I would have been saying, I know this sounds insane. I know this sounds like fear-mongering, but I need you to look at the facts and the data of this to understand this is the most serious thing that human, it, potentially the most serious thing that humankind has ever faced. And we right now have an opportunity to get ahead of it. But you're saying if I get dropped into the White House right now, I wasn't able to do any of that. One of the biggest things I do is remove liability protection. If you get this virus and you can demonstrate that you got it somewhere, you got it from someone else, or that you got it from a certain place, being able to after the fact, now it's not going to do much right now, but people knowing that they would not be protected from liability from this would go a long way in people choosing to shut down and choosing not to have these gatherings, not just big licensed gatherings like sports events and, 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 and you know, political rallies and, you know, uh, parades and whatever else, but even just private gatherings of people. People would be a lot more hesitant if they knew that, and again, this was going back to, to private arbitration in an anarchist society, if they knew that they're, upon being informed of what this is, that their basic, their complicit violation of the NAP is going to potentially result in them having to pay some kind of restitution or some kind of, some kind of you know, uh, liability for that, I think that would go an incredibly powerful way. And then I think from that, you're going to have people that are going to be socially imposing. So much of what's happening right now, because here's another thing we don't acknowledge, the culture affects state authority. State authority always acts after what the culture says, either in, in, in favor of it or in opposition to it. In this case, you had a tremendous number of people coming out saying, let's all stay indoors, let's do, you know, there's like the hashtag stay at home and all that stuff. All that was happening days and in some cases weeks before states were moving in to actually do it. So a lot of people that are staying indoors now were already doing so ahead of time. A lot were not. But I think that social pressure, um, uh, uh, explaining the actual situation as opposed to trying to portray it as some sort of worldwide Democrat hoax to, you know, hurt my reelection by, you know, killing tens of thousands of people magically somehow or hundreds of thousands of people magically somehow, that that's all just to make sure that my opponent beats me in the next election. Uh, and also removing liability protections and saying that, you know, if you are shown to have, you know, caused the spread, you are directly li uh, liable and, and, and responsible for it. Uh, I think that that would go a long way. And you could even argue saying, you know, that you would be criminally responsible for it. You know, if you're going to have the state of in enforcing authority on these things, then I think, again, I think those things would be able to do a lot, almost all of the same thing as having the police roaming around forcing people to stay indoors, which incidentally leads to the blowback of people defiantly doing the opposite. So, you know, you have, I call them the window liquor, the, the doorknob liquors caucus. These are people within, you know, uh, uh, freedom-loving sub-circles who, because they're being told this, are reflexively believing it's a hoax and are reflexively saying, let's get together and break the law and form large groups. They wouldn't be doing all of that if, they, if it were happening the way that I said. So there's not going to be any perfect answer that stops a, a, a viral pathogen like this from spreading around. In fact, authorities are even acknowledging that the best they can do is slow the spread to, to help reduce the, the overall burden on hospitals at any given time. But I think that, that these types of non-coercive actions that would simply expose people to their own liability would go a long way in, uh, in, in, in mitigating it. Oh, yeah, that was definitely a good answer. So I guess to break this down, you're basically saying that people should be open to lawsuits, essentially, if they knowingly go around infecting people. Now, I can see that sometimes that may be difficult to prove, but actually, ironically, my, my episode last night, 
I played a recording of somebody else's YouTube um, because he actually is concerned that it's going to get deleted because the company GameStop was actively, uh, they, basically they had a corporate phone call and they were explaining, you know, that, yeah, we're sorry you don't have anything to disinfect the products with. We'll get that to you eventually, <laughs> you know, and just making all of these but like yeah, statements because... Right. Because they're making so much money right now because people are like, oh, I better go get my video game and I better get it right now because they're going to lock us all down and we're going to be sitting in our house for 18 months. So rather than recognizing that that's a problem, they're looking at it as an opportunity to, you know, to capitalize, quote unquote, Um, you know, but that puts an excellent example of like, okay, did you buy a game at GameStop? You know, you could get a class action lawsuit together, you know, put the lawyers on it and go, you know, this might be why you got COVID-19. You know, you know, so that makes a lot of sense. And I, I think that that, you know, I do think, you know, that's something I think that I wish actually that more people were able to be able to talk to um, libertarians who come across the way you do, because even though I don't consider myself a right libertarian now, um, a lot of that leftover, you know, thought process is still present because I think it's actually a lot more compatible with even everyday people more than they might ever realize. And I think that unfortunately, you guys' reputation is brought on by, you know, people who have some pretty crazy ideas, the vocal loud minority, you know, um, but I think that's basically true of any group. Um, You know, so thank you for, you know, your articulate response. I guess what you're getting at, though, is, is that more or less is that you're hoping that if you just make it so that people are criminally liable and personally liable, you know, that you think that the the lockdowns can essentially happen voluntarily at that point? I mean, is that correct as to what I'm getting out of what you said? I think that the level of of social distancing and lack of interaction that would come from that will be pretty similar to what a state-forced lockdown would do. Because instead of putting the burden on, you have to do this or we're going to, you know, arrest you or try to stop you, which automatically brings out this, this, you know, defiant spirit that many of us have, which by the way, I absolutely empathize with. I empathize with the spirit of saying, what do you mean you're going to tell us all to stay indoors? You can't do that. And I I, I get that spirit. I think it's misplaced (laughs) in this situation. That's why I focus more on the messaging of how government brought this on us by, by failing to contain it and not allowing us to try to contain it. But ultimately, in this situation, which again, let's, let's go back to acknowledging that this situation was created by government having barriers on the private, on, 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 I don't even like using the term private, on voluntary free people trying to help each other was what created sure. this n- monster of a nightmare in the first place. But again, if I got dro- airdropped into this, you know, Donald Trump has been impeached, and for whatever reason, the U.S. Congress has decided to appoint me as the uh, as as president, which I don't, I don't have the authority to do, but some magic situation where I'm airdropped in and wasn't able to do anything about it beforehand. I think that those types of actions, letting people know that they're going to be liable for their violations of, of non-aggression once they've been informed of what the, what it is that they're facing, I think would do as much in terms of mitigating uh, uh, the amount of contact between people as a lockdown would. I, I really do believe that. And I and, I, and again, with the understanding that. And this is where a, a big part of where libertarians and anarchists will fall into, and, and people that are, are pushing their ideas in general. We tend to fall in love with ideas so much that we believe that it will bring about this sort of utopia where bad things don't happen or where they're just so, you know, it might happen, but it's going to be so much less that it's just simply not going to, it's going to be almost a non-factor. I don't pretend to think that any or human-derived system of organization is going to stop all terrible things from happening. 
I believe that the ideas that I am putting forth, if they were implemented societally, would lead to massive amounts of harm reduction and less of it happening. But are viruses still going to spread? Are there still going to be epidemics? I think far less than there would be without it. But those things can still happen. I don't think there's a, any magic bullet that anyone has that makes disease go away, except for technological innovations that will eventually eradicate pathogens and viruses and, and, and chronic illness and things like that, which, again, go back to free people being allowed to innovate to, to bring humankind closer and closer to you know, what we consider to be utopia. So now um, this makes actually a pretty decent segue to my next topic uh, is um, healthcare. You know, it's it's a big okay. hot button right now. Everybody wants to know yeah, what absolutely. candidates are going to do for them in this regard. And I know that the libertarian answer is probably going to be different than what they've been you know hearing argued back and forth right now. So go right. ahead and give me your answer. Sure. So first of all, let's all agree, focus on what we agree on. Our current system sucks and is terrible and is costly and leads to lots of people. You know, we talk about rationing healthcare, and that is a that is a legitimate problem in government managed healthcare systems. We have a different kind of rationed healthcare where people can't afford it, where people who don't quite qualify for Medicaid and don't quite qualify for this kind of subsidy and don't quite qualify for this end up making the choice not to get healthcare. And another group of people we don't talk about, because we immediately talk about the poor, but a lot of the poor are handled by Medicaid, which is not the best system, but it at least is a, is a stopgap. We don't talk about a lot of middle-class people who, because of the way that the system is set up, their premiums not only are very high, but their deductibles are through the roof. And so they often choose not to get health care because their deductible is so high that they simply can't afford it. So they don't. And so that lends itself to the reality that our system sucks. And I will say this, and I know I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lose at least 12 libertarian points by saying this, but <laughs> the reality is that in terms of access to care, at the very least, Medicare for all would not be worse than what we have now. I may have actually lost 25 libertarian points by just saying that. I really don't know. I, you know, there, there, there's been some inflation on the point, so I, I'm not sure what I just lost there, but it, it's not good. But I will say that I think that we have almost, in, in many ways, there are many good things about our system. But in terms of cost and availability, there are some major, major problems. The U.S. government spends almost as much money in taxpayer dollars per capita than almost any other country on earth except for the Scandinavian countries and a couple others. All of the other countries that have you know, universal socialized health care are spending, almost all of them, are, including Canada, are spending less money per capita, per patient, than the U.S. is. And then once you add the amount of money being spent out of pocket through, you know, insurance premiums and, and out of pocket care and everything, it's ridiculous. It's it's we're we're spending something like three times the the, the organization of develop OECD, the organization of economic cooperation developed nation, basically the the developed nation average. We're spending between two and three times as much for that care, which means that a lot of people simply aren't getting that care. So we acknowledge that this system is wrong. And unfortunately, a lot of libertarians fall into the trap of defending the status quo as a way to try to stop its growth into something even worse. And I understand that impulse. But the problem is defending this garbage system is a terrible way to start a conversation about healthcare because it is a garbage system and needs to be acknowledged as such. So we acknowledge the system is wrong. What's the problem with the system? Well, we look at the types of systems that are in place. Similar to the military or anything else the government touches, 
we have a complex. Instead of having a provider complex that is based on market demand and market need and, and, and a desire to help others, an altruistic need to help others, we have a system that's set up on making friends in government and getting endless amounts of money funneled to you uh, for, for development and, and profit and everything else without having to really prove yourself as a market provider. Now, we know prior to, uh, specific to the American experiment, we know that prior to World War II, the cost of healthcare went up and down roughly with the cost of living. There, there's not exact charts, but we just know anecdotally that there wasn't this skyrocketing cost of care. It pretty much went up and down with the cost of care, and there was a, a, a level of innovation that was happening within that market relative to just technical, technological and, 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 and scientific advancements in general. But what happened? Well, during World War II, there was a lot of talk about FDR implementing uh, uh, wage caps that in order to, at that point, the U.S. government was the largest employer. They were employing almost all working Americans to contribute to the World War II war effort. And so to try to keep their costs down, they introduced pay, uh, uh, or, or they were talking about, they never actually did it, but there was enough pressure, there was enough talk of them doing it that it kept the wages uh, depressed. And there was talk about FDR implementing wage caps. And preemptively to get around that, employers started uh, offering um, they started offering different benefits. The, the, the loophole around that was that they could offer benefits outside of base salary. And so that's where things like pensions and stuff like that came in. But that's also where health insurance came in. Prior to that, health insurance was a catastrophic thing that you would buy for if you had the absolute, you know, some terrible thing happen to you, it would, it would pay for it. It was not a bill-paying mechanism for your regular health care costs. So what happened there was you started having a situation where the most workers had health insurance most of the population and their families had health insurance. So now instead of them paying directly for their care, they were doing it through a bill-paying system. Well, this is where, you know, as a, as a libertarian, you know, quoting Milton Friedman about the four different ways that you can purchase something, basically there are four different ways you can buy something. You can buy something for yourself. You can buy something for someone else. You can have someone buy it for you, or you can have someone else buy something for someone else. The more removal you have between the person purchasing the good or service and the person that is paying for it, the more of a disconnect there's going to be between the cost of that good and service and the value of it. And so what we saw was after that implementation of, of health insurance, the cost of health care started going up faster than the cost of living. That culminated in the 1960s with the introduction of Medicaid and Medicare, government providing health care for the elderly and for the poor which made the cost go up even more because now you're introducing government largesse. We say, you know, you subsidize, if you subsidize apples, you get more apples. If you sub subsidize the cost of healthcare, you get more cost of healthcare. And so we see it going up more and more. And then with each new addition of a government involvement in the healthcare market, you see a, a, a corresponding increase in the rate of growth, not just in the cost, but in the rate of growth. And we see that in other sectors as well. We see that in higher education. We see that in lower education. We're often removed from the cost of education because it's almost entirely paid for by taxpayer dollars. But the reality is the cost of, of basic K-12 through education has been rising every bit as fast as, uh, as higher education has. And with no corresponding increase in literacy rates or, 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 or math comprehension rates or really anything. If anything, it's actually gone down slightly. We see in other markets like video games, furniture, uh, software, things that are less regulated, subsidized, and taxed by government that adjusted for inflation, those costs have actually gone down relative to the value that we get. So I'm very much a strong believer that by removing government, taxing, and subsidizing, 
and, and picking winners and losers, that you remove the cronies from the market and you, you have it more of a market-based system, I think you would see the cost of healthcare going down precipitously. I know that we would see the cost of healthcare going down precipitously. Now, with that being said, I recognize that there are people right now, and this, by the way, this isn't just healthcare. This is the welfare state. This is anyone living off of government because government has hobbled them to be in a position to needing it in the first place. So if I go up to someone and say, you poor thing, government has put you in this terrible position, but I'm going to fix it by taking all the stuff they gave you away. If, gov- <laughs> if we acknowledge that government, that the way that government treats the poor and those who are the most marginalized, really all of us at this point, that the way the government uh, affects us is by they show up, they take our wallet, they beat the crap out of us, they beat us half to death, and then they use a little bit of the money that they stole from us and give us a crutch and say, if it wasn't for me, you wouldn't have that crutch. Now imagine a libertarian comes along and says, hey, I can fix this. I'm taking your crutch away. This is not the way to deal with things. So do I eventually want to transition if, if, if I had the power to snap my fingers and do these things, transition us into a system of, of, of free market healthcare? Absolutely. That is the goal for, for the reasons that I've stated. Do I want to take away your grandmother's breathing tube because it came from Medicare? No, that's not my highest priority. My highest priority is harm reduction. And so before I would even consider doing that kind of stuff, I would be removing the barriers and, 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 and getting rid of the taxes and the regulations and subsidizations, uh, or really just the taxes and regulations that make the cost so high to begin with so that by the time I'm done with things, you're not going to need that system. You're going to have a free market system. I'm not going to have to take you off of Medicare. You're going to have better options that cost you less. So that would be my answer, and it's, it's my answer to the welfare state. Any of the things where government has so infringed upon a market that they have presented themselves as the only people that will actually keep you from dying as a result is that I would, I would remove those barriers and that harm that's been done so that eventually you don't need it in the first place. But my priority isn't taking it away from you in the meantime. Yeah, that's definitely a much more realistic way to handle it. I think that um, there are people that just kind of think that they could just flip a switch and they eventually would work itself out. And that that's definitely not going to appeal to the American voter who knows that that's not going to work itself out. I mean, it would even, you know, if all the theories are correct, it it, it would eventually, but (laughs) we don't have eventually. It would eventually work. It would eventually right. work itself out to the tune of however many people suffering and dying as a result in the meantime. So we're definitely not going to do that. Like that's not. And, and, and again, you can't ignore the real politic of that. If I if I come into presidency, if I come into the White House and, and somehow you know pull the switch on these things and people are dying in the streets, all that's going to happen is I'm going to get removed and they're going to go back even harder the other way of, of, of higher subsidization and higher taxing and regulation. And anytime anyone tries to talk about implementing a, a free market solution, they're going to say, oh, you mean like Cohen who killed all of us? So, I mean, no, it's a, it's a terrible way of doing it. Real politics has to be acknowledged. Yeah, that's definitely a good answer for that. Um, much better than, than many I've heard. That's for certain when it comes to um, the libertarian answers Thank about you. things. But um, so, you, you know, um, moving on from healthcare, I guess, obviously you touched on education a little bit, but um, mm-hmm. I, I'd like to go and speak to the voters that are concerned about the, the mountains of student debt. Um, and I guess, you know, you've touched on it a little bit. I think the basic thesis is there for how you would apply that. But for the sake of our listeners, go ahead and, and tackle the issue of higher education and student debt. So there's two questions. And, and uh, the one, que- one question is how to stop the student debt from continuing. And then the second question is what to do with the student debt that, that exists. Uh, how to stop it from continuing is, is, and I kind of started talking about it before, like you said, with healthcare. The, the more you remove the regulatory 
uh, things that are in place, the subsidizations, the taxes, excuse me, the regulations and things like that, um, the, more you, the more you remove those things, the, the more access that you'll have and the, the lower the cost will be. Here's another thing that we don't talk about, occupational licensing. I spoke to, I would say, probably 500 students when I was at UNC Greensboro. And when I would ask them what they were majoring in, at least 80% of them were majoring in something just to get a job that required them to have that education to get the license to be able to do it. And when I would ask them, I didn't ask all of them, but when I would ask probably about half of them, are you learning anything that you didn't already know or that you wouldn't have learned being an apprentice or being involved in this, bit, this line of work that you want to get into? Almost all of them said no. Almost all of them said no. I learned this on the job or as an apprentice or, or whatever else and wouldn't be having to do all of this. I am doing this because I'm required by law to. Getting rid of those occupational licensing requirements, or at least the requirement of having a diploma to get involved in it, and switching instead to allowing more and more people to apprentice at these types of positions, which incidentally is going to give them a much better education because it's not an education in theory, it's an education in actual practice and application. That would go a major way in reducing the artificial demand for this so-called higher education to begin with. So that would be a very powerful thing removing the, 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 the other regulations and taxes and subsidies that drive up the cost of, of higher education would be another way to do it. And so that would help reduce the, whole, the, the overall student debt to begin with. So what do we do with the existing student debt? Well, during the Obama administration, as part of passing Obamacare, they actually nationalized the student debt. So now you are indebted to the federal government. Now, this is a very unpopular opinion within most libertarian circles that I'm about to say. It is illegitimate for you to owe a debt to a government that forces you to have it. And so one of the very first things I would do is eliminate that student debt. I would also make those other, those other changes that you wouldn't end up just having a bunch of people going and running up student debt and hoping that I, would, I would, you know, that I would be subsidizing it. But I would end the student debt, and I would release that market back to the market. Instead of having the government in control of it, if you want to get a student loan, you can get it through a regular you know, student loan organization that has an underwriter that's going to decide the, the, the risk relative to giving it to you instead of just dumping endless amounts of debt on you. I would let those institution know, institutions know these better be good loans because I'm not giving you a bailout. You're not going to get a bailout from me. So you better be doing it based on actual market demand and, and, and you know, some kind of underwriting that you're using, uh, some kind of um, actuarial you're using to decide whether this is a good loan to give or not. But I'd also be removing those occupational licenses to begin with, and I'd be putting massive amounts of pressures, pressure on the states as what I would consider to be a civil rights issue, your First Amendment right to, uh, to engage in, in commerce as you see fit. I would be uh, seeing that as a civil rights issue, that if you're requiring people to pay you to be able to do a job, that that is inherently a violation of people's uh, human rights, and I would be uh, treating it from that way. So between that and uh, forgiving the student debt, uh, existing student loans, I think that that would be a powerful way of dealing with that. Now, one of the biggest objections I hear from people is, well, that's not fair. I paid off my student loan, and I did it the, the hard way. That's terrible that you had to do that. There are many examples of people who had to suffer, and as a result, we learn that people shouldn't have to suffer. It doesn't mean that you continue that suffering from others. That would be like someone who spent 20 years in prison for selling uh, uh, cocaine saying, well, you can't end the war on drugs. I had to go to prison for that. It's not fair that others shouldn't have to go to prison as well. You know? Yes, no, thank you for pointing that out. Your, 
your suffering is a reason that it shouldn't have to happen again to anyone else. So I would apply, obviously this is, you know, a student loan isn't, you know, 20 years in, in, in prison, but it is 20 years of debt prison. It's 20 years of having to pay that freaking loan uh, uh, in some cases. So no, I would say, I would say that the harm that people have had to suffer um, is, is a reason to end it for others. It's not a reason to continue it. The fact that I, I was abused doesn't mean someone else should have to be abused. So that would be how I would deal with that. That's an interesting point that just like it put a memory in my head of watching this guy at a town hall scream at Elizabeth Warren, you know, pointing out that he had to put his kids through college. So were they going to give him his money back or whatever? And, right. you know, I just right. if you applied that logic of, well, I suffered, so you should have to as well to a lot of other things. People with people's attitude would change about it pretty quick. You know, it's like, of course, um, of course. you know, and I, I just but I thank you for for definitely having a good answer on that one. Um, so. Uh, we covered student debt. We covered uh, health care. We covered foreign policy. We talked a lot about COVID-19. Um, I do want to say to any of the listeners who are listening live, I know the majority of my listener base does download later, but um, there is a phone number that you can call if you would like to call in and ask our guests any questions. Um, just be aware that this particular episode is for the guests. So don't call into my show, have me enable your mic and then talk for five minutes sounding off <laughs> like I'm interviewing you. Just get to your question so that I can get to his answer if you decide to do that. Um, the phone number should be available in the show description, but I will also read it off here. Um, actually, I won't read it off because it's not available right there. But if you look at the link, um, there should be a, a phone number for, the, uh, um, for you to call in if you want to get an opportunity to speak so is anyway the same number i called in no it's not um although i could theoretically oh, okay. answer them that way but there's one that's specifically for for people listening but if they give that phone number you can go ahead and give that phone number i'll still be able to put them on okay yeah so the number that i called in and that you can call in as well is 516-590-0320 and i'd love to hear your question okay so all right. Um, we've definitely covered a lot of the standard ground and I've been very you know, happy with um, how everything has gone so far. Um, I guess now going into this, um, one of the things that I've said is that leading on into the debates, I do not intend to allow, if you guys participate anyway, I'm not going to allow any personal attacks between candidates as in I don't want to waste a bunch of time right. um, allowing people to mudsling. But in the event that there is anything that you want to say about another candidate, you know, it's going to be during these individual sessions that I have with you guys that if you have any concerns about each other that, you know, I'd prefer that you keep that out of it. But if, if this is, you know, if there's anything you want to say along that line, then it would be better to do that in this format than for me to have to deal with it when two of you are fighting each other. So um, if there is any criticism you have of any of the other candidates, you can feel free to give that now. Um, otherwise, I will move on to the next topic. So rather than getting into a specific candidate, because it really, because then what happens is you, they think that you're calling that candidate out and, it, and it's not. Um, I, I, I'd like to speak in more of a meta sense here or more of a macro sense of, 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 of what concerns me. This idea that we should be presenting libertarianism in a quote unquote palatable way, meaning that or what they perceive to be palatable or so-called pragmatic way that we shouldn't, you know, even though we have this amazing libertarian platform that calls for self, the, the, the exertion of self-ownership in, in all situations and, and, and the, you know, our, 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 our preamble calls for the, the elimination of the, of the cult of the omnipotent state. 
And then we, we put forward candidates that don't actually believe that. They want less government or maybe a slower growth of government or maybe, you know, a more, uh, 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 you know, a, 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 a reading of government that they think complies more with the Constitution. But it's still a government that is going to massively infringe upon ourselves, our lives, our bodies, our labor, and our property. Infringe on every aspect of our lives, just maybe not quite as much as the Republican or Democrat candidate was. And, And the reason they say this, they say it's pragmatic, that the people simply aren't ready to hear our message. And that, you know, that, 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 you know, we need to present a, a pragmatic idea in order to get, you know, enough of the vote to actually affect change. After 49 years of, of trying that, for the most part, I'd have to argue that we can't call it pragmatism anymore. Pragmatism, you can't call something pragmatism if it always fails and we all know it's going to fail. The fact that we're still talking about whether or not we can get 5% of the vote, we aren't even talking about if we can win. We're talking about if we can get 5%. Sometimes we get really super aggressive and talk about whether we can get 15% so we can get on the debate stage. The idea of getting like, I don't know, 35% so we can win a three-way election never even comes up. People don't even deign to, to, to entertain that idea. Uh, and, 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 and often people that do get laughed at for it. And yet we're told that we have to present this sort of milquetoast idea of what libertarianism is, libertarianism is in order to win when we know that it fails every time we introduce it. And I think against the backdrop of the reality that in the last federal election, something like 46% of eligible voters did not vote. And when asked on different polls and, 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 and study groups that have been done on these people as to why they didn't vote, the biggest answer they gave was they thought the system was a joke. They thought that the politicians were all lying. They didn't believe a single thing that they said. And they thought that therefore their vote didn't even matter because they were all going to do whatever they wanted to, which is correct. They're right. Those 46% of people didn't vote because they had it figured out that it was a waste of their time to do it. So why would we give them a third option that's also a waste of their time? Why wouldn't we give them a clear, viable deviation from the current status quo that's been you know, governing over us from the beginning? Why would we not say, no, this entire system is wrong? Here is why it is wrong. Here is our platform which explains why it is wrong and why we are right. And here is our plan to completely, radically reform the way that things are done in this country. Why would we not do that? The worst case scenario is we don't get 3.25% this time. Maybe we only get 2%. I say we're going to get way more than that. But literally the worst case scenario is we still come in third. Why would we not try that? So that's more of a, a criticism of the so-called pragmatic. And like I said, I don't think it's, it's you can't call it pragmatism if it fails. It's just fear of change. Um, so that's my that's my that's my 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 quarrel. If we're doing the festivist air, airing of grievances, that's my grievance. Um, and it's not against any individual candidate or individual school of thought. It's just towards a a thought process within many in the party that that's the best way to handle it. And I, I think that it's demonstrably false. No, I think that was that was really well said, especially as a former member of the Libertarian Party myself. Um, you know, I definitely right. think that you're speaking to a lot of the problem there. And, you know, I'm glad that you, you took that opportunity. The main reason that I offer that during these individual sessions is so that if anybody wants to get that off their chest, that they can do it now rather than during the debate, yeah. which I want to be focused on issues. Of course. So 
Uh, I mean, in some cases, there are candidates who need to be called out. I mean, like watching Elizabeth Warren go after Mike Bloomberg was honestly, in my opinion, a symphony and it needed to happen. Um, you know, watching Tulsi yeah, Gabbard go after happen. Kamala yeah. Harris, you know, those are both good examples of, okay, this is when we really need to do this. But if they're just doing right. it, you know, like the, you know, the reason I gave you earlier was like when you remember the debates between Obama, John Edwards, and Hillary Clinton, Obama and, and Hillary would just sit there and snipe at each other and dominate the microphone while John right. Edwards was just sitting there and now unable to talk. So we'll get into that more later. Right, but, right, right. Um, so mm-hmm. now there was something, actually, there were some more generic questions that I forgot to ask, and I, I feel remiss. And, and one of them, I, I hate to even ask this, because to be honest with you, I think it's somewhat of a red herring question, because it comes up in every single election, and the issue hasn't changed in decades. But it has to do with abortion. Right. Roe v. Wade. Um, we're talking about this mm-hmm. every four years. And, you know, honestly, I, I think that it's not that I don't think that the question is important. It's that, that regardless of who's been elected president, it hasn't changed. And there is the potential, theoretically, right. that it could, but it's, it's just so off. And I think it's mostly just something for the media to get their talking points in, but, or rather their ratings up. But I still have to ask it because voters do still care about it. So what is your position on mm-hmm. abortion? So the short answer is we are pro-choice. And that's, that's sort of the standard libertarian response. There are, there are certainly libertarians that are, that are pro-life. They believe that that the fetus is, is a, is, you know, its own human being and, and, you know, deserving of, of his or her own, you know, uh, 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 exercising of its own, you know, uh, autonomy and, and, and can't have it violated. I actually considered myself a, a pro-life libertarian for quite some time. Um, and then I had to tackle something. First, I had to tackle the question of, of personhood because we acknowledge that a fetus is a human life. Like no one says it's not, but a liver is a human life too. So, for example, if I, if I went to the doctor and they said, you know, we have to, you have an organ that's bad or has cancer or whatever, God forbid, some, you know, whatever, some, something has or is, or is diseased or whatever, and we have to remove it or cut out part of it or whatever, no one would say to me, you can't do that. That's a human life because it's a part of me. When we're talking about whether a fetus is a human life, that's actually the wrong discussion to have. What we need to ask is personhood. It, when does this become its own person. And the reality is we have no consensus on that. Even within religious groups who claim to have an objective, you know, understanding of when uh, uh, life begins, which usually is on conception, even within those groups, there's disagreement on when exactly that is. And I often find that the people who exert, you know, their belief of when it begins don't act in such a way that actually, it actually betrays that they don't truly believe that. So for example, pro-life activists who say that it begins at the very moment of conception, and yet they spend all their time at abortion clinics instead of fertility clinics, where several orders of magnitude more, using their terms, human beings are being killed uh, uh, for you know, sex-selective uh, uh, in vitro fertilization, uh, fail, failed in vitro fertilizations, where they, implanta- they do a certain amount of implantation- implantations with the idea that almost all of them but one or two are, are going to fail, Using their definition, that's murder, and it's happening on a far more massive scale than at an abortion clinic, and yet they're at the abortion clinic. I would argue that's because they inherently believe that a, a say, six-month-old fetus or four-month-old fetus is inherently more person than that embryo, regardless of what they say. There are many other people who say that, you know, personhood begins, you know, the, whenever the parent says it does, you know, when, at, at the time of birth or at the, just after birth or, or just before birth. 
and yet they engage in you know gender reveals and and uh, and you know naming the, the the fetus before he or she even comes out. You know all of these things tell me that they also aren't 100% sure when it begins. There's a second question. Even if we could figure out when personhood begins, now there's a second question. Do you have a positive burden obligation to keep someone else alive or to host someone else? So let's use a similar example. You're, you own a piece of property and someone is staying with you with the agreement that they will help pay for you to be able to keep your property. And they are bedridden, so they can't leave on their own, and, and causing them to leave would more than likely cause them to die. They are not paying their way, and they are, you are now at risk of losing your property, where now both of you would be out, including them, and they would die as a result. Do you have a moral obligation to host them? Which, by the way, is a different question from would you host them. A lot of people say, I continue to host them. I'm asking you, do you have an obligation to host them? Should someone be able to put you in a cage or fine you or do something you know, harmful to you if you don't host them? I would argue that we don't have positive, burdensome obligations on anyone that we don't have some kind of, 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 of contractual relationship with. And even those have limitations. They can't, they can't force you to be a slave. They can't force you to do these things. And so while this is an incredibly squirmy subject to talk about, I often am happy to engage in this debate because I believe that the most strict interpretation of the, uh, of the idea of self-ownership and non-aggression is that evictionism, and that is the idea that you do not owe a, a positive burden to a fetus, uh, is the most correct in, in, in implementation. Now, I will say this. If we eventually reach a point where a fetus can be removed and continue to gestate either in someone else or in some kind of, you know, uh, in, you know other, other kind of envir- you know, artificial environment or something else, that, that now creates, creates a, new, uh, a, a new moral question as to whether, you know, you could remove, you know, if you choose to just abort it as opposed to allowing it to go into somewhere where it can continue to, continue to gestate independent of you, whether that's murder or not. Thankfully, we don't, you know, we're not in that situation, so it's not a debate we have to have. But strictly speaking, I am, and I personally have some personal moral qualms. If, if, my, if my wife and I became pregnant, I, I, uh, I don't believe I would be okay with that happening. And ultimately, it's her choice, but knowing her, I don't believe she'd be okay with, with us having an abortion either. That's a personal choice. It's her choice. I can't put a gun to her head and tell her she has to keep that fetus. And if I'm not willing to put a gun to my own wife's head and tell her that she has to keep a fetus, then I'm certainly not willing to use proxy violence through some third party to force someone I don't even know to keep their fetus. Now, that's a, an interesting answer. Um, I guess let me throw another curveball at you, though, because then it gets more complicated when you start talking about, say, partial mm-hmm. birth abortion. That's a, again, this is a very difficult one. My, and this is something where I'm not fully understanding. If in a partial birth abortion, well, let me give you the, the baby, let me go ahead and be more fair to you and give you a more clear rundown, just so we know specifically what kind of okay. partial birth abortion I'm talking about. Fetus is okay. now a baby, completely viable, but not legally a person yet because it hasn't escaped the womb. Um, actually, right. Ron Paul described walking in on um, such a um, procedure as it was being done. And it was one of the things that cemented to him that he could never be anything but pro-life. But 
for it. But we're talking right. about a baby that literally the only reason it isn't a baby is because you haven't let the head come out. Um, could breathe mm-hmm. on its own, could live on its own. You know, I mean, now you're in a gray area. So where do you find yourself personally on that issue? I think if we're now talking a situation where the child is actually viable, or the fetus, or whatever you want to call it, is viable to live outside of the mother, even with some level of, of help, I think now you're, you're falling into a question of, of whether this is a violation of that, of that child's autonomy. Because now it's no longer a question, if you want the child out of your body, fine, but you're saying, I don't just want it out of my body, I want it to be you know, terminated once it's outside of the body. I think in those types of situations, if you have a viable child that the person doesn't want, where it's actually having to be born anyway, I think that the the more, uh, uh, I think it can be argued. And again, I, I, I'm a little squeamish on answering this because I don't know the science behind it, but if we truly sure. are in a situation where a fetus is viable outside of the womb to then kill it afterwards, to me, you're now, you're no longer just evicting, you're now killing something that could be viable. Would it still need help from others? Yes, but I'm sure there would be others who would be happy to step in instead of having it killed. I think, I think if, 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 if the alternative to partial birth abortion is other people coming in and, and taking care of it, I think you'd find plenty of people that would be happy to do that. And so I think now- Considering the waiting it, list it, that there are no for adoptions, that makes perfect sense. <laughs> yeah. yeah and, so, oh, and by the way, so speaking to a bigger issue with, with abortion, one of the biggest problems is, you know, we have such a bottleneck on adoption, and a large part of that is because of impositions by the government. Um, even though we know that uh, a lot of these kids end up in foster care, uh, which have much lower burdens to to, for, to be able to be a part of, and there's rampant widespread abuse uh, in these foster care systems, so that we know that it would actually be far better to have them adopted into permanent homes. Um, I think that would go a long way. If you could have adoption be easier, uh, and less burdensome, less burdened upon by government, you could have more people that are going up to, you know, troubled uh, teen mothers and single mothers and, 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 and financially desperate mothers who may already have multiple other children that they already can't afford. Now they find out that they're pregnant with yet another, uh, that, that would be stepping up and saying, hey, listen, if you at least, you know, birth this child, we'll take care of it. And, and I think a lot of them might say okay to that. And, and if they don't, then that's their choice. But if we're talking, if we're talking a child that's actually viable outside of the womb, I think we're now going back to an argument about, we're now talking a human being outside of another human being and whether it's okay to kill it or not. Um, and that's a whole other question. Right. That's, yeah, that definitely is. But that's why I gave it to you. And you, you fielded it pretty well. So um, now we talked about abortion. We talked a bit about education. We've talked about, you know, um, oh, well, you know, actually, this is one that we, we probably should hit on. And we've talked a lot about it on the fringes, the edges, but especially when you're talking to poor people, um, one of the things that always drove me crazy was um, particularly really poor Republicans. Like, um, and for, they don't recognize that the Republican Party is not doing anything for them, you know, but they're right. so loyal. Maybe they were raised that way, you know, and you can't even get through to them with either a libertarian message or with a democrat or liberal or progressive message they're they're so ingrained so let's so basically then what do you say you know say to the well i i'll use me i'm a single parent i work at a restaurant um you know uh i make decent wages when i get hours but you know you know but i can't get further along and i have two children you know it's very difficult for me to make ends meet 
you know, and with our economy the way that it is, a lot of people are left behind. And I think that one of the biggest parts about this is an understanding of why people are in that situation. And I, I frequently have to tell conservative friends of mine that, you know, you are aware that there is a bottom of the economy that is like being in quicksand and it gets really yep. hard to pull yourself out of it. Mm-hmm. And I think yep. a lot of them are not familiar with that, particularly the much older crowd, yep. because, you know, houses aren't $15,000 anymore. Cars aren't $1,000. Anymore. It's not the same world, yep. you know? So anyway, so coming back then to your point on it, I would say, you know, what do you say about the economy when it comes particularly aimed at the poor? Why should they be libertarians rather than Republicans? That's an excellent question. And it's actually something that, like I said, when I go into housing projects, I talk a lot about going back to our, um, uh, the analogy I use that what the government does to the poor is, you know, they go up to them and beat them up and take their money and, 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 you know, use some of the money to give them a crutch and say, hey, if it wasn't for me, you wouldn't have a crutch. But that's, a, that's a, an easy, lazy analogy. And we have a very long show we're doing, so I don't have to use easy, lazy analogies, uh, which is good. Let's look at how the poor, uh, and, and when I say the poor, I don't just mean people that are destitute and facing homelessness. I mean, maybe, you know, anyone below the poverty line. So a lot of people that would even be considered middle class, the working, the people that are trying to work and get ahead and, 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 and you know, don't have necessarily, you know, a, a robust 401k. They don't, they are two, two or three paychecks away from, you know, being destitute. Um, so they're not that, they're, they're not as far ahead as they might want to pretend uh, as some of the, you know, some of the, the people in the lowest strata of the economy. The way that they are, and there's so many, and this is something we could spend an entire episode talking about, but the shorthand is, first of all, the money that we use is a politically designed currency that is designed to go down in value every single year. We accept the idea of inflation, which which we believe, by the way, we believe inflation is the cost, the increase in the cost of living. That's actually the symptom of inflation. Inflation is the expansion of the money supply, which is in a perpetual state under the Federal Reserve. And now you're a former Ron Paul guy. You know where I'm going with this. Oh, yeah, for sure. The bottom line is that the, the U.S. dollar, what we call the U.S. dollar now, the Federal Reserve note, is worth something like 98% less. It's worth something like three or four cents, three, around two, three, four cents on the dollar of what it was worth in 1913, which explains why the cost of living has gone up as much as it has since then. It explains why a $15,000 house is now $300,000. It explains why just things like food constantly go up in, in, in price, not just because of things that cause the, the price of that individual thing to go up, but the fact that the money you are using, you were talking about quicksand, the money you're using might as well be in quicksand because it's constantly, constantly losing value. And the reason it constantly uses value is because the federal government has the Federal Reserve print out endless reams of cash that it, it turns around and lends either to the government in the form of purchasing T-bonds or to their friends and cronies in the central banks and Wall Street. We just saw that happen uh, last week, where with two actions, the Federal Reserve dumped $2.2 trillion into Wall Street and the banks. That would be the equivalent of giving every U.S. household something like $17,000 tax-free. And instead, (laughs) they gave it to the banks and Wall Street, which caused the stock market to go up for about 35 minutes before dropping again. 
I call that UBI for billionaires. The right. reality of what the poor people face is that, and then here's the next thing. So that's the Federal Reserve and your money constantly losing value. Here's the next thing that happens. We talk about taxation. We talk about taxes for the risk for the rich. And this is one of the things that I really hate how libertarians message it. Because, in, again, in their knee-jerk reaction to try to stop things from getting worse, to try to stop the status quo from becoming something worse than, than the status quo, they end up defending the status quo. In this case, they defend billionaires who are often right. at the forefront of introducing new laws that infringe upon all of us or introduce or you know, competing for no-bid, multi-billion-dollar contracts that we all have to pay for. And we find ourselves defending them. Listen, I'm glad Jeff Bezos made Amazon, which he made from his, his garage or from a small uh, office or whatever he did. I'm glad they did these things. The problem is when they reach a certain level of wealth, they're no longer primarily worried about providing value to the market. They're now prim primarily worried about retaining their wealth. And so their entire strategy shifts from giving more and more value to the market to getting more and more ties in government and more and more cronies in positions of power in government so that they can get the, the largesse directly from the treasury that they need without even having to go to us. Why we would defend that, I have absolutely no idea. Now let's talk about taxes for the rich and why there is no real such thing. The wealthy and the corporations and all of the people that get taxed the most on paper simply add that to their overhead and charge it to you when you buy their goods and services. All taxation is inherently regressive. The more of your income that higher a percentage of your income is being spent just purchasing things for, for, for your own, you know, for, for, for your life to be able to live, the higher a percent of your income is being de facto spent on taxes. Maybe not directly, but you're paying it. Jeff Bezos isn't paying his taxes. He's adding it to the price of what you pay. So all taxation is inherently regressive, which means that all government spending is the act of transferring wealth from the bottom strata of consumers to the top strata of producers and investors and various other cronies. And I, and I don't want to say that all producers and investors are crony, but the higher up the strata they go, the more likely they are to be. And so every single action that government takes is a de facto transfer of wealth from the poor to the rich. So when we talk about class warfare, we are absolutely in class warfare, and the rich are winning. So what do we do? Well, we eliminate that reality. We switch to a free market system of an economy where the only way you become wealthy is by serving the market. And the very second you're no longer serving the market to that extent, you lose that relative position of wealth. You don't necessarily become poor, but you're not just going to ever become ever richer and richer and richer. And you're not going to be able to impose your will in the form of regulations and taxes and programs on everyone else and force them to pay for it even indirectly through, you know, you're, you're adding overhead to the taxes that you're supposedly having to pay. Those two things alone, because, again, we could spend hours on this, but those two things alone, ending this, this mentality of corporatism, which, by the way, people ask, are we a socialist nation or are we a capitalist nation? We're a fascist nation. We exist under the, corporate, the corporatist economic system. Corporatism is the economic plank of fascism. If you look at how our economy is run, if you look at how our, how our foreign policy is run, if you look at how our, uh, uh, the way that we uh, welcome, uh, that we introduce new people into this country is done, if you look at every aspect 
of how people are treated in this country, especially marginalized groups, people of color, gender and sexual minorities, the poor. Once you remove your emotion and your jingoism and your patriotism using strict definitions, it's hard to come away thinking that this system is anything other than fascism, or at least something very, very uncomfortably close to fascism. So going back to the economic question, when we have a system that is centrally planned, it is going to benefit the central planners. When we have a system that is set to benefit the maximum number of freer people, it's going to benefit that number of freer people. Again, will there be an end to poverty? Is this some utopian solution that's going to fix everything? Absolutely not. There's always going to be poverty. There's always going to be uh, uh, you know, people struggling to make ends meet. There's always going to be a lot of that. This is about harm reduction, reducing the number of people in poverty reducing the number of people who, you know, the, the idea that, you know, 12 people or whatever own half of the wealth in this country. Anyone who thinks that's a result of merit needs to really examine what they think about themselves because they're more than likely not one of those 12 people or 100 people or whatever it is. And if that's what they believe, then they're really crapping on themselves quite a bit to think that they deserve to be lumped in with the other 99 point whatever percent of people who own the other half. So I would argue you, maybe some of them got there initially through merit, but they didn't retain that through merit. They retained that by learning the system of government largesse. And so I would work to eliminate that system so that it is more fair and equitable and is more driven by actual market demand and supply and demand as opposed to a handful of cronies deciding how everything's going to be done and forcing the cost of it, externalizing their cost to the poor that they're imposing it upon. How does that translate for the because I understood everything you said, but I've been studying economics for a right. while. But let's say that you're pitching right. this directly to the I mean, it's a little more complicated to ask this question in the right context, because COVID-19 makes everything far worse. Um, you know, and there right. are some people that are just completely going to like their job just doesn't exist until this is over. Right, um, right, right, right. You know, so, but on average, you have the, you know, like, how do you translate what you're just saying into, so how does that work for the, for the poor person? You know, what, what, you know, uh, I, let's just say, I don't know, um, well, we'll go with, you know, again, I guess I'll just use myself or something similar to myself as an example, uh, mm-hmm. restaurant worker, yeah. um, you know, uh, two kids, you know, you didn't have kids, uh, you know, believing that you would be poor, but, you know, you, you had a divorce, you're, you're, your ex-wife was crazy. <laughs> you didn't realize that until you already had kids. You know, now you're barely right. making rent. And, you know, that, I mean, I'm, I'm not quite this bad off, I might add, but there are plenty of people who are. How do, yeah. how do you sell to them that, that doing all these things with the market that you're talking about would somehow improve their lives? Well, one thing I talk about is, is the fact that uh, I think it's something like 40% of the cost of goods and services is, can be tied to some form of tax or regulation. So you're talking about cutting the price of things in half, in theory. Um, and, and so, you know, if you ask someone who's in a bad financial situation how much better things would be if, if the cost of things that they needed was half, that alone helps a lot. But it, it goes even further than that, and that's why I, I said this is something we can talk about a lot. The reason your cost of your rent is so high is because the landlord class has a stranglehold on, on the supply of properties. And a lot of them aren't even intentionally doing it when I talk about the landlord class. But the reality is the amount of supply of housing is severely restricted by things like zoning laws. 
and, 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 and NIMBYism, not in my backyard laws, that make it so that, you know, if a neighborhood decides, you know, we want to all just be single family houses because we like the aesthetic of that, and that means you, you on your own property can't build affordable housing if you want, that imposes, that in, externalizes an additional cost on everyone else. So now your rent goes up because A, you're having to get a much bigger property than you wanted, and B, there's not as much available to begin with. Or you're now having to commute from you know, several hours away where there is affordable housing, which is what drives up the cost of, you know, we, we talk about uh, market urbanism where there's an entire group, uh, you know, uh, group of a movement of people in these urban areas that aren't libertarian at all, but they're pushing for an end of these zoning laws and an end to NIMBYism to try to introduce more suppliers into that market, into healthcare. So that's yet another example. Reducing uh, uh, the cost of your housing by increasing the supply and eliminating the chokehold on it. And you can apply that to everything, to healthcare, because you can't, you can't remove the economy from everything else. You can't remove the economy from healthcare. So much of people's economic and financial situation is directly tied to healthcare. You can't remove it from the war on drugs. So many people's economic situation is tied up on the fact that they have some felony charge for some nonsense that they pled guilty to because they didn't, you know, they couldn't afford a good attorney and they were, you know, in the same room as someone who was, you know, selling cocaine or they were doing it themselves. And now it's, you know, imposed upon them that they can't get a good job for the rest of their lives. So you really have to look at the harm, the levels and layers of harm that are being done to each and every one of us every single day by the state. And so that's why when you say, what's your answer to the poor person, I'm usually talking to them directly and hearing what they have to say and saying, well, here's how in your specific terms of, what, of, of what's harming you the most, how that would, how that would you know, be better under a more libertarian, non-coercive, voluntary, non-aggressive system that's based on self-ownership and, 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 and voluntary cooperation with others. Um, another thing is mutual aid. We have all but effectively banned mutual aid in this country. There are very few places where you can go somewhere and feed homeless people without paying thousands of dollars for licensing and approval. Now, let me repeat that. You can't feed someone who's starving to death without giving the government hundreds or thousands of dollars. In fact, we've actually engaged in some civil disobedience, and we'll be doing some more in the future, where we actually go and feed people and live stream it. And if the police show up, we let everyone know what's happening. And some of us choose to just keep on feeding them and get arrested. And some of us choose to comply under duress and explain why we're complying, why we are not giving food that we've already made to poor people. Um, so, I mean, we, like I said, we can do, you know, we can spend hours on this. There are dozens, hundreds, thousands of layers of how the government harms you in ways large and small. And removing each of those layers is a way to help someone get in the right direction. Again, it doesn't eliminate all poverty, but a lot of people who are living under poverty are doing so entirely because of what's being imposed upon them. They would not be living in poverty. They'd be able to help others. They'd be in a better situation because it, once you factor in the fact that they're just, – just those three things, the fact that they are – that their money is being basically you know, made worthless slowly over time, the fact that – something like half of the cost of their goods and services is related to some tax or another, and the fact that their cost of their housing uh, is, is, you know, is, is, is controlled by, you know, by, by NIMBY laws and, and, and zoning, and, and the fact that their health care and education are so expensive because of direct government involvement uh, imposing a, a complex of cronies who make a, a fortune and, and basically do rent-seeking in each of those industries, those three or four things, removing that, would allevi- alleviate most of the poverty in this country. 
So we're now down to about the last nine minutes. Um, I wanted to give you an opportunity okay. to tackle another one that is a hot button, but um, unfortunately I don't have as much time as I would have normally have liked to have given you, but we've had a pretty good conversation here. So that of course, you know, put us on pretty long. So um, I'm going to talk about global warming and the environment mm -hmm. and try to put those two together. Normally sure. I would have liked to have given more time to each, but go ahead. Okay. So um, one thing I will say is from what I know about the technology available, and I don't claim to be an expert on this. I just, I've watched, <laughs> I've watched quite a few YouTube videos. I probably know more than most, but I, I, I have learned enough about other subjects to know that my uh, position on the Dunning-Kruger scale is a lot closer to the beginning than it is to the, to the, you know, the, the, you know, the, the thinking I'm an expert because I've, I've heard a lot of things. Um, but here's what I will say. Um, I think that given the technologies we have now, I think that any talk about reducing carbon footprints that doesn't address two things. One, the largest polluter, which are governments and their cronies, and two, the only real what's the word I want to use? The only truly sustainable, non-weather dependent relatively clean, carbon-neutral form of energy, which is nuclear energy. Anything that isn't talking about reducing the harm of the state, which is, again, the easily the greatest polluter of, of, of all our governments and the, the, their large corporate interests that, 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 that they control and, 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 and that they give, they give special cover to for their, their crimes against the environment that the rest of us use, which, by the way, I do consider a violation of the non-aggression principle. I think if you dump something on my land, then you are aggressing against me. If you dump something in the river we all use, you're aggressing against us. It may not be you coming and punching me in the face, but most aggression isn't like that. Most aggression is something that is still a direct effect, but you did it through a proxy. In this case, it would be pollution. Um, so I think that, first of all, a lot of the things that I talked about would help reduce pollution just by removing the coercive entity that is never held accountable for its crimes. But the other thing that would happen is I, I believe that nuclear energy, at least for now, and especially thorium, which my understanding is that the, the toxic half-life of, of thorium as opposed to uranium is, is a fraction. It's like you know, a matter of, of, of a few dozen or a couple hundred years as opposed to thousands of years, um, is, is, is definitely at least as a stopgap until we have things like fusion finished and, and figured out um, is a good stopgap uh, for uh, – dealing with our environmental concerns related to, you know, carbon output, um, especially when you consider um, the technologies that are showing as being very promising. There are scientists that have been able to show that they can reduce the half-life of, uh, of spent fuel rods uh, down to a matter of, 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 of minutes by using some type of pulse labor technology, uh, pulse laser technology. Again, I don't claim to know all this stuff, but it looks very promising. There's another one where they were able to actually encase uh, the the pieces of the spent fuel rods into some kind of a crystal uh, a, a crystal encasement uh, that allowed it to operate as a very low level battery for tens of thousands of years that's totally safe and, and isn't emitting any it, all of the the radiation stays within it so it's not emitting any radiation I think if you allow the market the shortest answer is if you allow the market to come up with technologies to deal with this and by not making them some centrally planned coercive authority that presumes authority over us, they're actually held liable for when they harm us. I think that those two things would go quite a, quite a ways in reducing, 
you know, carbon emissions, reducing pollution in general, uh, and, 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 and having, again, a reduction in harm. I, I don't think there's a utopian answer for, for environmental issues. I think that there's a harm reduction answer, and I think that the market is that answer. Again, by removing the coercion of a government that simply can do whatever it wants and not be held accountable for it, and introducing more uh, uh, more actors in that market to introduce more and, and increasingly innovative ideas that can that can help us innovate out of this problem. Now, how does that? Because um, we have five minutes, but um, now how does that relate to? Let's assume that. Um, well, I guess I don't know what your personal beliefs are, but when we talk about global warming, now you're dealing with something mm-hmm. that could theoretically be considered a violation of the non-aggression principle to everybody on the planet. Um, provided yeah. you believe in global warming, because people keep arguing about that. But, you know, what is your take on that specific issue? So I believe that from the evidence that I have seen, I have a reason to at least suspect that uh, uh, human activity is leading to a tipping of, of the scale towards a, a, a gradual increase in, 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 in the, the, the temperature that wouldn't have otherwise happened. So it is true that there is this sort of, uh, you know, natural increase and decrease in, in climate temperatures. But I think that there's been pretty compelling evidence that even though it's been a small contribution, cumulatively over time, it builds up into a large contribution. Someone used the, the analogy of, of putting just a, a small amount of water in a bathtub, um, that it, it causes it to overflow, even though it's a small amount over a long period of time. Um, so I think that there's at least compelling, a compelling reason to, to believe that it's real. Even if there isn't, most of the things that address climate uh, car- carbon emission output also address things that we all agree are real, such as you know uh, uh, water pollution and air pollution. Those things are also addressed when dealing with it. So even if worst case scenario this is all a hoax to hurt Trump, uh, then uh, you know by dealing with it we are, or a hoax to you know whatever hurt big oil whatever whoever is being hurt by this, um, even if it's all a hoax. Dealing with it would also deal with other things that we all acknowledge are real, real environmental pollution issues. Um, and like I said, I believe that the best way to deal with that is is through the market. I know I only have two minutes left, so it's hard to give a, 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 a but you know a, a, a comprehensive answer. But yeah, right. free. Anyway, I, I I believe that by removing coercive entities in general, you remove uh, 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 unaccountable coercive players who do whatever they want, and you replace them with people who are making choices based on supply and demand and which and, and, and on, on on their care for their fellow man and also are are accountable for what happens. Here's the one thing I want to say. There are two ways you can get a good or service. You can get it from a monopoly who doesn't care whether they serve you well or not because they're the only option in town, or you can get it from competing and cooperating providers who trip over themselves to provide you with the best value available so that you'll go with them instead of someone else. Government is not just a monopoly. It's a violent killing, thieving monopoly that is financed with your money that they steal from you and enforced with violence and threats of violence. I would argue that that is not a good organization to get answers, to get solutions from in general. Well, that was an excellent answer. Um, now that we're down to the last two minutes, um, I just want to take an opportunity to thank you for coming on. Um, I'd like to talk to you Absolutely. briefly off the air. If you're available, I'll just Skype you when we're done here. Um, and sure. I want to thank everybody for tuning in. So again, um, this is just the first in many of my third-party candidate series. It is my intention to invite all of the Libertarian Party 
presidential candidates on. Um, it's also my intention to invite the Green Party, the Socialist Party, the Constitution Party, every viable third party candidate, preferably with ballot access, but I'm willing to talk to people who don't have a lot of that either, and some independents. And my intention would be to have eventually a libertarian debate and a Green Party debate, et cetera, and then finally culminating in general election debates between all of the major third party candidates. So please um, consider making a free Blog Talk Radio account so that you can follow me here on Blog Talk Radio. Otherwise, I believe you can still also subscribe to my feed on iTunes. Thanks again for coming on, and um, thanks again for tuning in. Thank you guys for tuning in. I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. It's a depression. Everybody's out of work or scared of losing their job. The dollar buys a nickel's worth. Banks are going bust. Shopkeepers keep a gun under the counter. Punks are running wild in the street. And there's nobody anywhere who seems to know what to do, and there's no end to it. We know the air is unfit to breathe, and our food is unfit to eat. We sit watching our TVs while some local newscaster tells us that today we had 15 homicides and 63 violent crimes, as if that's the way it's supposed to be. We know things are bad, worse than bad. They're crazy. It's like everything everywhere is going crazy, so we don't go out anymore. We sit in the house, and slowly the world we're living in is getting smaller, and all we say is, please, at least leave us alone in our living rooms. Let me have my toaster and my TV and my steel-belted radios, and I won't say anything. Just leave us alone. Well, I'm not going to leave you alone. I want you to get mad. I don't want you to protest. I don't want you to write. I don't want you to write to your congressman because I wouldn't know what to tell you to write. I don't know what to do about the depression and the inflation and the Russians and the crime in the street. All I know is that first, you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm a human being. God damn it. My life has value. So, I want you to get up now. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. I want you to get up right now. Get up, go to your windows, open them, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Things have got to change. How many stations does this go out You've got to get mad. I know it goes to Louisville and Atlanta. We're not going to take this anymore. Then we'll figure out what to do about the depression and the inflation and the oil crisis. But first, get up out of your chair, open the window, stick your head out and yell, and say, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Who are you talking to, Herb? Atlanta. Are they yelling in Atlanta, Herb? Are they yelling in Atlanta, Ted? But first, you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. They're yelling in Baton Rouge. God damn it. Get up, get up, get up out of your chair. Son of a bitch! We struck the mother low. Stick your head out of the window, open it, and stick your head out, and keep yelling, and yell, I'm...